Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, we're talking New Hampshire politics because as goes New Hampshire, so goes the nation. So has the focus of the impeachment inquiry stalled the momentum for the 2020 presidential election? If it has, one of the first places to feel the impact will be in the Granite State, where voters are cheek by jowl with presidential candidates. Right now, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren is pushing past Bernie Sanders in voter attention and enthusiasm, and Texas Senator Ted Cruz has endorsed a candidate for New Hampshire Senate, and it's not who you think. Later in the show, just how far will parents go to give their offspring an advantage for a spot in a prestigious school? We highlight a novel whose storyline is oh so timely. Just in time for back-to-school angst, we're reading Bruce Holsinger's novel, The Gifted School. It's our October selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me from WNHN in Concord, New Hampshire, two folks who know the ins and outs of New Hampshire politics. They are our New Hampshire insiders. Arnie Arneson, former New Hampshire Democratic legislator and host of WNHN's The Attitude with Arnie Arneson. Hello, Arnie. Hey, how are you, Kelly? I'm great. Also with me, Paul Steinhauser, campaign reporter for Fox News Politics and the Concord Monitor. Welcome to Under the Radar, Paul. So nice to join you. I'm so glad to have you. I'm jumping right in with uh, the impact of the impeachment inquiry. And before the two of you speak, let's take a listen to Elizabeth Warren, who's calling for Trump's impeachment at a recent town hall in Keene, New Hampshire. There are some things that are bigger than politics. I took an oath of office, and so did everybody in Congress. And that oath of office is to follow the Constitution of the United States of America. No one is above the law, not even the President of the United States. So I want to hear from you two what you're hearing from folks who are concerned the Democrats could face a lot of blowback from the impeachment inquiry, or this is exactly what the Democrats should be doing. What are you hearing? Arnie. Well, Paul, were you at the Keene event for I, Elizabeth? I was at the Keene event. Okay. She uh, she briefly mentioned One impeachment at the top of her speech, right. and then later that was that audio yeah. there was from when we reporters gaggled with her. But she, you know, she got her point out there already. But she did not. It no. didn't dominate the event. So she she did what was atypical for her. She started with impeachment. Normally, she starts with you know the story of her life in Oklahoma and yada yada. So this was a little bit off script. But I want everyone to know it lasted one minute. So not only did she mention impeachment, but there's another thing you need to know, Callie. She was the first presidential candidate to embrace the idea of impeachment, I believe April 19th, uh, to be precise. So in a lot of ways, she feels like, you know, she was there first. Now she's there. It turns out all the presidential candidates uh, who are running in 2020 are embracing the idea of impeachment. The last person to finally do it, I think kicking and screaming a little bit, was Tulsi Gabbard. She did it uh, after actually two or 
two days of sort of not saying that she would do it, but then after looking at the gestalt of information and evidence or whatever she was talking about, she too is now on the impeachment train. So they're all talking about it, but actually, like Elizabeth, they'll spend one minute and then pivot right back to what they think are the issues that will really sort of separate them out from each other for the 2020 campaign. So, Paul, there appears to be a little bit of division among Democratic operatives on the ground there in New Hampshire. I'm just reading that members of New Hampshire's Democratic congressional delegation are welcoming the impeachment proceedings. But some of the folks who are, you know, behind the scenes, making sure the party stays on track, are a little bit nervous that this may throw off the focus from 2020 and get some folks thinking, actually, maybe this is a time for me to support President Trump because they've stirred up the Trump base in this way. They're sure they are. And some of the candidates as well. I know Cory Booker, when he was here in the state the other day for politics and eggs, said the same thing. He was concerned that it would overshadow the rest of the campaign. And I understand that because there's a possible outcome here. The House impeaches, but the Senate doesn't get the 20 Republicans needed to come over to the Democratic side to actually convict and remove the president from office. And then what do you have? Is there blowback against the Democrats? So, yeah, there's concern here in New Hampshire. There's concern across the country right now that that is a possible outcome. But I think you've definitely seen a major switch of opinion yes. by by all Democrats, even yeah. e- even moderate Democrats who are up for reelection in Trump districts. Even they have now come on board. So this thing is going forward, whether there are concerns or not. This is going to happen, and probably by the end of the year, we'll have an impeachment in the House. Then we'll see what happens. Let me just do a little bit of a qualifier here. The top-tier candidates aren't worried. They're top-tier candidates who are worried about whether this will sort of impact the 2020 campaign for a president are the lower-tier candidates, because they're already trying to say, hey, notice me, hey, notice me, even though they're only a 2 percent. Cory Booker's a perfect example of that. He's a very strong candidate, but remember, he was begging for more money in order to stay in the race, because if he didn't reach his 1.7 or whatever the magical number was, there was rumor that he was going to drop out on Tuesday. So again, for the candidates that are not the top three or four, this is a concern. They don't want anything that will detract people away from it. But I do want to remind everyone that guess what, Callie? You're in the state of New Hampshire. And what do we know about New Hampshire? New Hampshire has a presidential primary on the Republican side. So as we are talking about impeachment and all the Democrats talking perhaps about impeachment, you've got a number of Republicans who will be the echo chamber on impeachment, only the sound more like Democrats, because you actually even had Bill Weld, I believe it was on MSNBC the other day, almost fell off the chair, basically suggested that what happened with Ukraine could be defined as treason. So, you know, you've heard that word coming out of Donald Trump when he's referring to the chairman of the committee that's looking at this. But to hear it coming out of Bill Weld means it'll be interesting because it will not just be Democrats talking about this impeachment. It will be three Republicans. Well, two things. First of all, there are two Republican governors who, at this moment, are supporting impeachment inquiry. One is Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker. The other is Vermont Governor Phil Scott. Haven't heard anything from Chris Sununu. I'm guessing you two will probably say he's not going to line up that way. And the second thing is, I want to make it clear to people that the president's spokespeople or self-assigned spokespeople, are very firm about this being a nothing burger. Here's Senator Lindsey Graham, who is daring Democrats to vote to open an impeachment inquiry against Trump. The only way to open up an impeachment inquiry is to vote. We need a uh, John Hancock moment from House Democrats. Quit hiding behind Nancy Pelosi. If you think the president did something wrong in this phone call, then vote to open up an article of impeachment inquiry, and a lot of House Democrats won't because they're afraid.
that's his story. He's sticking to it, Paul. Does the fact that there are two uh, Republican governors who step forward, they build well, whatever you think about him, he is a candidate running against the president. He said something. Does that mean anything? Yeah, there, I'm sure there are some cracks in the unity on the Republican side, as to be expected, but but not many in the Senate. And that's the most important thing. They're, they're the ones that are going to vote on this. You know, there's Mitt Romney and maybe one or two others that would consider crossing the aisle and joining the Democrats right now. But again, the Senate won't get this in their chamber until early next year. And things may be dramatically different by then. You did mention the governors, of course. No huge surprise. Uh, exactly. The governors of Vermont and Massachusetts, not big fans of Donald Trump, whereas the governor here in New Hampshire, a very purple state. Well, Chris Sununu has been walking that tightrope since 2016 when it comes to Donald Trump. Right now, at least, he is uh, downplaying and criticizing the moves by the Democrats in Congress to begin this uh, impeachment inquiry. So this is playing out in, in many different courts on the Republican side, but we're not anywhere near any kind of critical mass. Where the, where the president has to have some concerns. Oh, but Kelly, I have to smile because I'm so glad you brought up what the Trump people are saying, that this is a nothing burger. So let me share with you what I posted on Facebook. You ready, Kelly? Mm -hmm. I wrote, Trump's press secretary, quote, the president did nothing wrong, close quote. I wrote, also known as extortion and cover-up are what we do. So uh, to a large extent, that's part of the problem. They're living on two separate planets. They're looking at this sort of shakedown of the Ukraine president. They're looking at the fact that they've upclassed this in order to hide it from people as something that appears to be normal. And I think most people are beginning to realize it doesn't smell so normal. But uh, I, let me just say, and Callie, you brought this up earlier. Uh, for some of the lower tier Democratic candidates who now are going to be starred for attention yes. even more, there is an issue here, and that is Joe Biden, because mm -hmm. all of this started uh, back, you know, in 2016 when the vice president's son, uh, Hunter, was uh, on the board of that Ukrainian uh, uh, energy company. We know that the Trump administration and the, the, uh, the president's playbook is to go after Biden. But what about some of these Democrats? We've heard in recent days two of the uh, Democrats, one middle tier, that's Andrew Yang, and then a lower tier candidate, the senator from Colorado, Michael Bennett, say that if they were president, they would not allow their vice president's children in any way, shape or form to be on a company, a board of a foreign company. Right. Mm. But but the, what they are doing, Callie, and, uh, is they're being careful not to criticize the vice president, the former vice president here. So they're looking forward. And if they're snipping it at Biden, it is very, very indirect because the Democrats are trying to have a exactly. unity moment here and stand with Biden. But at the same time, some of these lower tier contenders would like to get a jab. Well, in. actually, um, I believe that Elizabeth Warren actually has a standard of ethics for who would be coming into her administration. She was asked the question, would you allow your vice president son to be on the board of, you know, X, Y and Z company? And her initial answer was no, which was right. She would not allow this. Then she goes, but I need to have more details <laughs> here. And I'm going, oh, Elizabeth, shut up. <laughs> Well, Just stop it. No. No was the right answer. If you become president, these would be your rules of behavior. There is no question that this was an appearance of impropriety. The problem was, for whatever reason, someone did not either vet it enough or they basically said this did not rise to the level of concern. I think it was a concern then. I still think it is a concern. Now the question is, can Biden play it out as, see, he's so afraid of me that he has to go into the history books in order to find something that's a gotcha that actually has been proven to be nothing illegal. I guess the question is, is it illegal? Well, I think the issue is, is what Paul was saying, too, is that yep. the lower tier candidates have a shot at saying, well, and that's all you need in this kind of moving situation exactly. right now. Yeah, but I think we're all in agreement that the optics weren't <laughs> great there for the vice president. As for Warren's yeah. campaign, though, I was there with a bunch of other reporters. Right. Uh, Annie Linsky from The Washington Post asked that question. Uh, the right campaign answer. had to come back to us, all of us, and say, oh, by the way, 
Warren's plan that she's put out there to clean up government ethics would not preclude somebody from uh, a child of a vice president from serving on the board. So they could have served on the they board could have, under her yeah. ethics bill. Yeah, but I bet she'll change that plan. I, I'm yes, guessing. exactly. I'll offer the amendment. I'll offer the amendment to the plan. I'm guessing. <laughs> I just want to put a button on this conversation to say that uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has said that if the House impeaches President Trump, he will have, this is in quotes, no choice but to hold a trial in the Senate and a vote on removing the president from office. There was some discussion about whether or not he'd try to do some kind of stalling tactic, but uh, he himself has said now, I think for the second time, no, that would not be the case. So I just wanted to put that out there. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm talking to Arnie Arneson, former Democratic legislator and host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson, and Paul Steinhauser, campaign reporter for Fox News Politics and the Concord Monitor. They are our New Hampshire insiders. We're discussing the early politicking in the Granite State and all politics, New Hampshire. Let's go to what you guys do best, first in the nation primary, retail politics. Paul, uh, for sure, you've been following around a couple of the candidates we've referenced a little bit briefly, Andrew Yang and uh, Cory Booker. And um, I wanted to just hear a little bit from Cory Booker, who both of you mentioned in passing. Arnie, you said he he just barely mm-hmm. stayed in the race by begging for some more mm-hmm. money and getting it. But here's Cory Booker talking about his campaign efforts in New Hampshire. Granite Staters should know uh, that I'm coming here to win and I'm making a massive investment. If you just look at the percentage of our resources that we're investing in this campaign, uh, I mean, they're extraordinary. So I'm here. Uh, I don't b- believe in uh, this idea that you can't compete here. We've got people in this race who are neighboring states. No, I believe that if I put my message, my heart, my gut in front of folks, that people will be able to make a good decision and that we'll win. And I, I'm looking forward to competing hard in New Hampshire. So, Paul, that's uh, you got that sound from him. You've been following him. You also did a you know follow up story about his his effort to to be clear to New Hampshire folks who take their politics very seriously that, you know, he's here and in for the long run. How do you assess what's happening in New Hampshire? Because it looks like, yes, the candidates are coming, but not as frequently as they have in the past. No, no fears, though, that the First Nation status, which is very treasured up here, is in trouble because every four years there's some out-of-state writers that write that. So that, that is not the issue. But the issue is this. Yes, this cycle, at least, and especially the last month or two, I was getting a lot more campaign traffic than we are. I, I don't take it personally, though. Listen, they're first. <laughs> they come first. Of course they're going to get more. They're a larger state. You have to spend more time there. Don't have to spend as much time here in New Hampshire. We're pretty small, only 1.3 million people. But but also, the reason I asked Booker that question when he was up here last week for Politics and Eggs is that one of his mid-tier rivals, Senator Kamala Harris of California— Moved to Iowa. Pretty much, yes. yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. In fact, she said that in the she U.S. Said it. So, And some of the other candidates as well. Pete Buttigieg has been spending a lot more time there than here. And lower-tier candidates, like uh, think uh, Montana Governor Bullock, uh, Senator yeah. uh, Bennett of Colorado, they're basically living in an Iowa as well. Booker's strategy a little different. He is really making his stand here and then hoping he has a good finish here and then as well in South Carolina. So that is one of the reasons I was asking him that train of thought. Well, let me just also remind you that Bernie Sanders has increased the number of people on the ground, paid staffers to 50 in New Hampshire, doubling the number that he had before. So he obviously has a concern about New Hampshire. The other thing is, let's also remember that Iowa is the first event. 
not primary event. And if you're trying to figure out, you know, how to sort of let people know that you exist and do better than expected, you've got to start with the first event. And the first event is Iowa. It's interesting that Kamala has chosen Iowa and Corey has chosen New Hampshire. I think that's kind of interesting how they've sort of divided up the task between the two of them. But Corey, for the longest time, actually has had the most offices. He's been very, very organized here. That's what's so sad, is that while he started earlier with the best organization, it hasn't really produced the numbers. He's still very, very low on the polls in New Hampshire. But I will tell you, and I think I've said this before, that during the Democratic convention where all the candidates came, the person who gave the strongest speech and the person who was not expected to do that was Corey. He was outstanding. I mean, you heard a good speech from a lot of them, but I will tell you right now that most people walked out saying the best speech was delivered by Cory Booker. He is a gifted orator. Absolutely. And he did it again uh, in Politics and Eggs, which is not a Democratic yeah. activist crowd. That's a business crowd and an academic crowd. They gave him a standing ovation, wow. which you don't see that often in politics and But to Arnie's point, though, Callie, you know, has he popped in the polls nope. here? No, he's got a good organization, but he has not popped in the polls here. We're now, what, just four months away from the voting, so it's crunch time. All right. Well, Andrew Yang has been trucking around the state as well and has put some investment in there. But again, he doesn't seem to be popping in the polls either, except it feels to me every time he debates, people say, well, he's making sense. But then I don't see people necessarily supporting him. But he's got a sort of a cult what do they call the Yang gang? They are really uh, strong for him. Well, I think that in, I don't know what poll it was, but he was actually, he beat Donald Trump by eight points, Andrew Yang. I'm not sure where it was. Was it New Hampshire? Was it Nevada? But it was somewhere and they were like ecstatic. So, you know, I mean, he's interesting. He's charming. He's offering you $1,000 a month. Who wouldn't want that? I mean, you know, there's always something there that's attractive. But let's also remember, he's looking at Donald Trump. You know, where, what was Donald Trump's political history? You know, where did he come from? And uh, obviously, he, he performs well on television. So Andrew figures, if it works for Trump, let's try it with me. And I'm also giving you something more than Trump. Trump said, I'll build you a wall. He says, I'll give you $1,000. I interviewed Yang in April of last year. His me first too. visit me up too. here. Yep, wow. He did as well. When nobody knew who he was. Exactly. Nobody. The last five months, he's really, his campaign has surged. It's it soared has. in the polls. You see his crowds. They're much larger. They're much more enthusiastic. He's raised a good amount of money in the second quarter. And, and he's saying that when we see the new numbers coming out in coming days for the shocked. third quarter, we're going to yeah, we'll be yeah. impressed. But even he admitted it's easy to go from zero to four percent, which he's done. Yeah. Yes. Now the bigger challenge is to go from four percent up to upper tier status. That's the big fight for him ahead. And it's interesting that Paul mentions that he was he interviewed him last year. I did as well. And I will be honest with you, I was kind of rolling my eyes when he first came on the air. It was a fabulous interview, Kelly. So, again, he, he knows how to punch out. The problem is punch out beyond 4% is going to be his big challenge. Well, he's certainly interesting to watch, I will say that. All right, let's go to, speaking of top tier, at the very top tier, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren is, I guess the Boston Globe article said it best, the rise, the rise, and the rise of Elizabeth Warren. This has been fascinating to watch, as I certainly was one of the people who wrote uh, somewhat strongly, I didn't think she should get in the presidential campaign. Go shows what I know. Should not be a political operative, I'm thinking. Uh, anyway, she's done herself quite a service by not only surging, but surging ahead of Biden in some polls and certainly above Bernie. And to the point that some of the Bernie Sanders people are taking directed shots at her. Let's get the response from the two of you. Paul, I'll start with you. She had a great unveiling back. I think it was the beginning of February, a beautiful mm -hmm. winter day in Lawrence in front of those historic mills. Right. And then from there, her campaign just went south very quickly. 
But maybe that was a blessing in disguise because she was left alone. Donald Trump wasn't attacking her exactly. anymore, calling her Pocahontas. The other candidates weren't critiquing her or jabbing at her. And what happened? Starting basically in April, her poll numbers slowly but steadily were rising. She put out an eye-popping fundraising number in the beginning of July, mm -hmm. and it's been continuing. This ride has been going and going. And now, yes, I should say in many recent polls over the last week or two, right. both in the early voting states and nationally, she is tied with Biden within the sampling era. And uh, her trajectory is going the right way. The big question now is, she's going to have a target on her back. And we got exactly. that next debate coming up. Let's exactly. see what happens going forward. And the target isn't just from Biden. It's also from Bernie. Because, mm -hmm. But what's interesting about her is if we did ranked choice voting, she'd be number one, no question. She is everybody's second choice. Mm -hmm. Let me repeat that, Kelly. Mm -hmm. She is everybody's second choice. That was her gift because she started pulling people from almost every campaign, a little from Kamala, a little bit from Amy and Bernie, obviously, as well as Biden. So she has this sort of smorgasbord of appeal. And initially, people were saying, oh, I like her also. I like her also. Well, as more and more of the top tier candidates are experiencing either some weakness or some damage, that I like her also has become I like her. And so you're really beginning to see her rise in the polls. And I also think the other thing that she does, and I'm going to take this as an example of something I did when I ran. When I ran for governor, what I did was I hired a pollster, Callie, in September of 1991. And she said, OK, I'm going to go in the field and test your message. And I said, no, you have to wait a year. And she goes, what? I said, they need to hear me first. I need to build my campaign. I need to explain my policies. After I've done that for a while, you can go into the field. Ask Elizabeth Warren. She does not poll Paul. You know, she said this over mm -hmm. and over again. Other people may, but she doesn't want to be addicted to the polls. She wants to constantly, like the professor she is, she wants to educate and connect, educate and connect. And then when the time is ripe, then they will decide whether she has been heard. And so far, the polling outside of her campaign has suggested that that's working. She's got a large organization up here, Callie, along yeah. with Bernie Sanders, along with Joe Biden, they probably and Buttigieg. They probably have the top four when it comes to staff on the ground. Obviously, she's very well known here. She gets big crowds. There was 900 people for in her Keene. in Keene State on a school night and on a work night, which was pretty impressive last week. But um, again, there are some stumbling blocks. Where does she stand on Medicare for all? Does she mm -hmm. truly support it like Bernie Sanders or not? There have been a lot of questions about that. And she said some interesting things in recent days. It's going to be fascinating going forward. You know, the, again, the candidates will be showing down uh, in the coming days for the next debate. Uh, we'll see how much the other rivals go after Elizabeth Warren. In New Hampshire, as I've been uh, reading through so many articles about her operation on the ground there, both she and Sanders have been in fisticuffs going after some of the local party people. And I'm quoting from a Boston Globe article. This is Kathleen Kelly, a Randolph, New Hampshire activist and former state Senate candidate. She talked about how Warren convinced her. She said, at first I thought she was this fancy Harvard Law School professor, but then I got to see her and learn more. You see, she is really a Midwesterner and her life story just really connected to me. So these are the folks that she has to convince as well, or the people who are been out there sort of organizing groups of other folks, potential voters for her. And that's apparently, as I'm reading, a huge fight between she and Bernie to end up with the top numbers of those folks.
So let me let me just say something. I think Bernie made a mistake. And let me tell you what I mean. And I don't mean a mistake by running. What he didn't realize was that when he ran against Hillary Clinton, the anointed candidate, it was a magical campaign. I mean, he was this senator from a state the size of a suburb. He was always an independent, never a Democrat. I mean, they keep talking about his organizing skills. He never organized anything but Vermont. I mean, come on. And so it was really remarkable what he did. And what you saw, especially in New Hampshire, where he beat Hillary Clinton by a huge margin, was that people People were craving an alternative, and they were also looking for something with a little more of a progressive flavor. That was the last time around. This is New Hampshire. We have the muscle of choice. We like kicking tires. We like looking around. Just because you won, you know, the state in 2016 doesn't mean you're going to win the state in 2020. And I think there was an expectation that once he had you the first time, he'd have you the second time. And what I said to Vox News was, I said, people don't have an allegiance to a candidate. They may, however, have an allegiance to progressive ideas or ideas. And now you've got a number of candidates basically singing off a similar script. Bernie may have helped to write the script, but that doesn't mean that you can't appreciate other people. And that's one of the reasons why you're seeing him changing people at the top of the field in New Hampshire. He's changing a lot of the people that are leading his campaign in New Hampshire, and he's doubling the number of paid staff in New Hampshire. Suddenly, he's got sort of this come-to-Jesus moment. Wow, this is a different campaign. I've got to respond to people differently. Paul, do you think the same thing? I, I, there's a perception. I talked to a lot of Bernie's top supporters. There's a perception by some of them who were visit, very upset uh, with what had happened this summer that the campaign, especially the national campaign and the campaign leadership here in New Hampshire, were kind of resting on their laurels exactly. and taking New Hampshire for granted. And while they were doing that, these people say Elizabeth Warren was reaching out and getting these uh, former Bernie Sanders supporters to come over to her side. Exactly. As already referenced, there was a campaign shakeup here. The state director is gone. There's a new one in here who uh, is very close to the senator himself. Uh, there's still plenty of time to make up for lost ground, but they have to make up for lost ground. Hmm. All right. This is interesting news. Uh, Senator Ted Cruz endorsing a GOP Senate candidate in New Hampshire, not Corey Lewandowski. What gives? Well, first of all, yeah, Lewandowski. I'll, I'll give it to you yeah. first, Paul. Lewandowski's <laughs> not even an announced candidate yet, right? There are three. Well, yeah. So, and yeah. there's still a question now uh, whether he may get. Uh, Brought, drawn in maybe to the White House, uh, either an inside or an outside role to help the president as he deals with this uh, impeachment uh, uh, Ukraine scandal. So we'll see about Lewandowski. But of course, if he does jump in, the president has already made clear many times, including at a rally here in New Hampshire in August, that he will endorse Corey Lewandowski. As for Ted Cruz, let's go back four years ago. Remember, these two guys, yeah. Cruz and <laughs> Trump, were pretty uh, really going after each other, and it got very ugly. So for Cruz, this was a way to almost to poke Trump in the needle. eye. Yeah, yes. needle him in the eye. <laughs> Who we endorsed was a guy called Bill O'Brien. He's our former State House speaker up here. Uh, and in 2016, O'Brien was the state chairman Thank for you. the Cruz campaign exactly. for president. So it's not a surprise that Cruz endorsed O'Brien, but he was very visible and vocal about it, almost kind of like Poking Trump in the eyes, Arnie, as I said the other day, was this kind of like, you know, a little uh, uh, fisticuffs between Trump and Cruz yeah. via proxies. Exactly. It's the proxy war. And mm. let's also remember that part of Corey's problem is, is that now you've got Judd Gregg, a, a beloved Republican in New Hampshire, who referred to him as a thug. And I mean, Corey Lewandowski. So you've got, you know, Gregg's language, thug. You've got the fact that, you know, when he was uh, before uh, Schiff's committee, he basically lies and says it's perfectly fine. I'm just lying to the media. Who cares? And then, of course, you've got the concerns that he's been a lobbyist for foreign uh, interests, and also he beat up on a Breitbart reporter. So you put all those together, and it's kind of an interesting package. 
It is, but some people like it. Remember while he was testifying in front of Adam uh, Schiff's committee, he also took a break. When they took a break, he then um, sent out an ad to raise funds for his potential Senate campaign, because Paul is right. He has not announced, but yet and still, it got quite a bit of uh, a support, as you know. Anyway, uh, that's I just had to deal with that. Now, I'm interested also, let me change topics, um, that uh, Dan Feltz has uh, decided to challenge Chris Sununu, the current governor, um, and he's the first Democrat to throw his hat in the ring. And part of the reason he's doing it is um, he's very frustrated by these vetoes, more than 50 that uh, the governor has um, issued, I guess. So the governor has, uh, has vetoed more than uh, more than 50-some pieces of legislation uh, and and there, uh, this the legislature has only been able to override two of those, so that's kind of important. Well, his name is Dan Feltis. He's a state senator. He's very respected. He comes from the relatively progressive wing of the party. There's a possibility he will be running against another candidate who I suspect will announce probably in the next two or three weeks, an executive counselor by the name of Andrew Valinsky, also beloved by the progressive wing of the party. In part, these two guys, in a way, they're like kissing cousins. It's going to be very, very difficult on a lot of people to make a choice. It appears more like the institutional Democrats are going to be supporting Dan Feltis. I'm not quite sure where Dan is going to take a position on the whole tax question. You know, we have to genuflect to axe the tax and take the pledge. Uh, the likelihood is Andrew Valinsky will not do that because he is known uh, actually statewide because he was the lead counsel on all the education lawsuits trying to pr uh, produce more income for especially poor school districts in the state. Every time he's gone up before the New Hampshire Supreme Court, he has won and defeated the state of New Hampshire in attempting to bring more revenue in. Uh, Dan is... Uh, Dan is very articulate. He's very well-known. He's already gotten two uh, unions to support him. I believe the Teamsters and the Carpenters. Am I correct on that one, Paul? I think so. And um, it's going to be... It's going to be very difficult for a lot of people. It's going to feel like Solomon and the baby. Which one do you choose? Mm. Because you admire both. And there's a chance, too, that uh, uh, the popular mayor of uh, Manchester, New Hampshire's largest city, Joyce Craig, may jump in next year. She's up for re-election this year uh, on an off-year election. And there's talk also that a guy called Steve Marchand, he was the former Portsmouth mayor, and he ran twice for the Democratic gubernatorial nomination in 16 and 18. There's a chance he may run again as well. He's currently a senior advisor to Andrew Yang's presidential campaign. We'll see. So it could be a large... Uh, rumble tumble primary going forward. Thing is, though, Chris Sununu. Let's let's just talk about the Sununu for a minute. He's got the well-known family name, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of a dynasty up here in New Hampshire. Uh, he's, if you look at his overall polling numbers, very popular. I think he's the third most popular governor in the nation behind your governor in, in Massachusetts, uh, and uh, I think uh, one or two others. Uh, he's going to be tough to beat, regardless of who the Democratic nominee is. But there's more There's more baggage now, this time around, for Chris Sununu because of those vetoes, vetoing some programs that were actually supported not oh, just God. by Democrats, by but also by, by Republicans. So right. he's definitely got a lot more baggage going into 2020. And then there's Donald Trump. Remember, Trump wasn't on the ballot right. in 2018. And if Lewandowski's also on the ballot, Yippee. it gets much oh, more <laughs> difficult 
for Chris Sununu. So let me just say something, Callie. Uh, Chris Sununu vetoed, I believe, 54 bills. Only one was overridden. That's more bills vetoed by any governor in history, number one. Let's also remember that each one of those bills, that meant they passed with Republican and Democratic support. They have a constituency of support. There are people that really care about them. In the North Country, especially, people in the timber industry are furious with him because of a bill that he vetoed. Now, that's a place where usually Republicans do incredibly well, but there are not a lot of alternatives alternative jobs up in the North Country, but for, you know, cutting down trees. And so as a result, what I think will be interesting will be how the Democrats play those vetoes with those different spheres of influence that those uh, vetoes represent. And if they can cobble them together, Chris Sununu will find out that he may be vetoed way too many, because in the end, that will come back to bite him, on top of the fact that you have a very respected U.S. Senator, Jean Shaheen, at the top of the ticket. And if she's running against Corey Lewandowski, fireworks will be everywhere. And right now, the Democrats control every single lever of government except for the governor's seat. And so between the vetoes and everything else, he will have a much more difficult reelection campaign. Well, it's going to be something to watch. I'm going to be looking forward to seeing who else jumps in for all the reasons you just said. Now, um, with just a few uh, minutes to go, I would like each of you to project forward because I'm uh, anticipating, and listeners, you should know this, having both of you on as we uh, continued the path to the presidential 2020 election. And we're four and a half months out or four months out uh, to the New Hampshire primary itself. But then, of course, so much continues to happen there. So I want to know um, what you the one thing you see that you would predict right now that's going to happen um, in New Hampshire on the, in terms of retail politics that you think is pretty much a given from your vantage point. Arnie? A given. There is no given in New Hampshire. I mean, I, I it's, it sounds ridiculous, but I think, Paul, I'm trying to figure out what would be a given. Um, I think, for example, that Corey Lewandowski will not run for the United States Senate. Oh, and so, okay. and, and I'm not. Uh, that's not a given. But there's so much right now that everybody is is looking for cover on. Uh, Corey hasn't set himself up to be a successful candidate uh, for the U.S. Senate. But but you know what? He supports and works with Trump. And with Trump uh, being unpredictable is his asset. Therefore, in New Hampshire, we're going to sort of sort of be the mirror to that unpredictability. The closest thing I can come to predictable is perhaps Elizabeth Warren succeeding in, in beating both Bernie and Biden. And in part, in the impeachment cloud is something that uh, is going to hurt Biden as much as it might be an asset. I don't believe it is. Yeah, the, uh, okay, Paul. the one given hmm. here, though, is that— uh, New Hampshire voters trend. They 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 decide late in the game. Yes. So we well we're throughout the polls right now. You know we know who's up and we know who's down right now, and uh, that could change dramatically between now and February. I think it's February 11th this time around. If Bill Gardner, our longtime Secretary of State, does declare that today, that's still up in the air. Though it's likely that'll be the date. So you know New Hampshire voters are going to wait. They're going to see the candidates five or six more times in person before they make up their minds. Watch Bill Weld. All I'm going to say is watch Bill. And the reason okay. I'm going to say that is because Trump's approval rating in New Hampshire is 82 percent with Republicans. That's actually 10 points lower than in the rest of the country. And uh, given what's happening and given the fact that we have a group of individuals known as undeclares, which represent about 40 percent of the electorate, they can pick up either a Republican ballot or a Democratic ballot at the time of the presidential primary. And what Bill Weld is doing is he is courting those undeclares like you could not imagine. And if impeachment is moving forward in a way that's toxic for uh, President Trump, 
Some of those undeclareds might decide they want to send a message, and Bill Weld will be uh, able to receive that message. He'll be the messenger. <laughs> okay. All righty. Well, I thank you both for joining me today. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Arnie Arneson is a former Democratic legislator and host of WNHN's The Attitude with Arnie Arneson. Paul Steinhauser is a campaign reporter for Fox News Politics and the Concord Monitor. Coming up, plans for a new school for gifted students raise the stakes for a close-knit group of friends, all parents, jockeying for a place for their kids. The increasingly toxic competition impacts their relationships with each other and their kids in this page-turning story. The Gifted School by author Bruce Holsinger is our October selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. In the gifted school, Rose, Samantha, Azra, and Lauren's long-term friendship slowly unravels as each fights for a spot for their kids in a new school for gifted students. The greedy desperation of the parents in fictional Crystal, Colorado, certainly has more resonance now as the headline-grabbing college admission scandal drags on. Author Bruce Holzinger's novel may help explain how the parents and the kids get caught up in the fight for acceptance in elite schools. The Gifted School is our October selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. And author Bruce Holzinger joins me now from the studios of VPM in Richmond, Virginia. Hello. Welcome to Under the Radar. Thank you for having me on. Oh, I'm delighted to have you on. What a compelling book. Thank you so from much. From the first page, I was all in. Well, thank you. It was, a, it was really fun to write. I think I was all in from the beginning of writing it as well. Well, I have to say, this is very different from what you have previously written. You have two other books, and they were set in 14th century England. <laughs> so this is quite a departure from what you've done before. It is, although I, I would have to say that um, I started writing The Gifted School maybe 10 or 12 years ago. So really, historical fiction is something I went to after getting into this novel, and, and it was really coming back to this contemporary story after those two historical novels. That's really something. We should say that you're a professor of English at the University of Virginia, and you specialize in medieval literature and culture. I always like my authors to give a description. I know I described the book in the intro a bit of, you know, how you see the book, but with no spoilers. We don't give any spoilers here on the show. So what would be your brief description of the book? Well, it's a story above all about overparenting. It's about these families that have been close for years and, um, you know, have gotten th each other through some hard times. And a school for exceptionally gifted children opens in their, their very affluent, largely homogeneous town. And it's about their the, the crises in their marriages, their friendships, and their community when uh, essentially this grenade goes off in their community. And it's about how they cope with this crisis that's thrown into their friendships and how they 
compete with each other. It's, you know, people call it with a college admission scandal, not just helicopter parenting, but snowplow parenting, where parents are, you know, clearing out the ground for their kids, giving them every advantage they can. Um, So the story is about privilege. It's about ambition. It's about families, but it's also about love in the end, and it's about how friendships and families can struggle through this kind of very privileged crisis, I guess you would say. Well, we should say that the book is set now, meaning that it's in these contemporary times, but as you said, you started writing this long time ago before the college admission scandal uh, known as Operation Varsity Blues was, you know, ever in anybody's uh, newspaper. Yes. So what was it that triggered uh, your interest in telling a story like this? I think there were a lot of things. I you know, I would go all the way back to my parents in some ways. The um, the epigraph to the book, the, the first sentence you read was actually written by my mom in her book called The Little Boy Book. And the sentence is, there's something so tantalizing about having a gifted child that some parents will do almost anything to prove they have one. My parents were both educators. My mom had a Montessori school in her basement. My dad taught in the Fairfax County Public Schools. He would come home with stories about gifty parents trying to get their kids into these programs. And my mom was a big believer in um, you know, in a level playing field for education from pre-K on. You know, they inspired my my interest in this in some ways. I also lived in Boulder, Colorado, a, a suburb north of Denver. And Boulder is the loose model for Crystal, Colorado, this beautiful kind of Palo Alto of the Rockies uh, nestled right up against the mountains. So I I, I lived in this, this kind of... Um, you know, high-pressure parenting environment when my kids were young. And I think that got me thinking about uh, the politics of education and about the relationship between privilege and affluence and advantage hoarding for children. I think that most people would assume that the intensity of the competition as it becomes a part of your your novel uh, is something that would be indicative of East Coast or West Coast, as we've seen. But I think it was a brilliant choice for you to put it in Colorado because we're thinking kind of, uh, those of us don't live there, you know, laid back, uh, not quite as populated, a little bit more <laughs> loose, whatever. I, that, that's our, that's our, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And you have, you know, you have these little hothouses everywhere um, in affluent suburbs, you know, places like, you know, Shaker Heights, Ohio, right? Mm. Evanston, Illinois. I think, you know, what 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 the East Coast likes to think of uh, of as flyover country is full of these little pockets of of affluence and, and privilege and and socioeconomic homogeneity. And, and I, w- I was really trying to to tease that out in, in a way that would be, I mean, it's very much a novel of place as well. You know, mm. it's, it's, it's a, very much a Colorado novel, a front range novel, but it does have, I think, you know, I hope it speaks to larger issues that could really be taking place anywhere like Crystal. Yes, I, I would agree. It, it does have that flavor. It just, it was interesting that I realized that my East Coast bias was there on the page until you informed me otherwise. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my guest is Bruce Holsinger, whose latest book is is The Gifted School. It's our October selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. Bruce, I'd like to get you to read from the book. Um, this is Rose, one of the characters who had not known about the school or the, the possibility of the school, and she's at a dinner party, and the subject comes up. Yeah, so they're at Thanksgiving dinner with their friends. They're over at the Zellers' house, and the Zellers are the the, the really rich family that, that everyone is kind of aspiring to. So this comes in in the middle of Thanksgiving dinner. 
The school came up a few minutes after the blessing. Edgar was reaching around to refill wine glasses when he asked, So, Rose, will you all be putting in for this academy? What's that, Edgar? It's the new Samantha Hun, he raised his voice. What's that special school you were talking about with my eldest grandson? The gifted school. The word gifted slashed like a guillotine through other topics. Around the table, the talk ceased. It's called Crystal Academy, Dad, Samantha said into the silence. A private? Azra asked, apparently as clueless as Rose. No, actually. Lauren leaned over the table, her short neck turtling out. It's a public magnet school for the exceptionally gifted. They're hailing it as the Stuyvesant of the Rockies, Kev said grandly. A high school? Rose's question. Grades 6 through 8 in the lower school, and the upper school goes 9 through 12. Oh, said Rose. Exceptionally gifted. Words to make the bones sing. This must be the mysterious other option Samantha had been hedging about at Rock Salt last week. What, a city school just for crystal kids? Oh, no, said Kev. It's a joint venture between the city of Crystal and the four counties. All five school districts, Gareth asked, but that's a huge pool of eligible students. No kidding, said Samantha. Over a hundred thousand kids for just a thousand spots. The one percent, Blakey observed snidely. Everyone laughed, but she was right. One in a hundred. Kev's acerbic sister was enjoying the conversation, Rose could tell, watching the reactions among her sister-in-law's friends as they parsed the news about the school. That's my guest, Bruce Holsinger. He's reading from his latest book. It's called The Gifted School, and it's our October selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. You have a double whammy in this book because the plot is about a school for exceptionally gifted kids. That's one kind of special exclusivity. And then it's an elite school on the other hand, in and of itself. And that's another kind of exclusivity. And by itself, a lot of parents are struggling to or would like for their kids to be a part of an exclusive educational experience, whether or not they're gifted. So you got two things going on here. So you really ratcheted up the tension, I think. And that reflects, I think, a lot of contemporary debates in education, not not higher education, but in, in elementary and secondary education over gifted and talented programs. I mean, look at what's going on in New York right now, where there's a, a really compelling proposal in front of the mayor to slash the gifted and talented programs entirely and get rid of that nomenclature and, and also to rethink how admissions work with the really selective schools like Stuyvesant High School. Those are debates that have been going on for a long time nationally, but they're really coming to a head right now. And I think something like the college admissions scandal really helps foreground those debates and, and, and helps us realize what a huge national conversation this is. Well, I think one of the of the things that comes up in your book that gives pause is trying to define what you mean by gifted, I guess, in any scenario. I always thought gifted meant way ahead of, you know, where you would be in, quote unquote, the normal standing. So, for example, there is a 14-year-old boy they just did a story on who's a freshman at Georgetown. He's got the intellect to be there. Now, socially, that'll be a different thing, but, but he's able to comport himself in those classes and keep up and do the work and all of that. That is my definition of gifted. But as comes up with many of your characters, well, some are saying, are you gifted because you've had certain kinds of advantages and experiences? Uh, And that was pretty interesting, the way it was discussed among your characters. Yeah. And I did a lot of research on how magnet schools like this or schools that 
call themselves, you know, schools for gifted children, how their admissions processes work. And that's why I came up with this two-tiered kind of system that I think, I hope in the novel, builds suspense. You have the first cut, which is based on an IQ test. Um, I call it the COG Pro. It's based on the COG app, but I, I wanted to have a, my own kind of model for that. So everybody has to take that. Some kids might get extra time. Some parents might manipulate the school system into giving their kids extra time. And then there's the second cut, the final cut, which is based on a, a supposedly a more individualized assessment of the student based on, you know, particular achievement in a given area, a kind of a way that the student might stand out. I mean, I would say that that 14-year-old who got into Georgetown would definitely have gotten into Crystal Academy. <laughs> exactly. So your book is divided into five sections that you alluded to just there. So the first part is called schooling. Then it's the first cut. Then the next one is the whole child. Part four is spikes. And part five is the final cut. And at each level, we're learning something different and various people are being weeded out or think they may be or worried that they are. And and the impact on the relationships is huge. People start to actually unravel <laughs> because <Yeah. laughs> this is so central to their existence. But yet it doesn't feel, and maybe because we, we have this Operation uh, Varsity Blues in the background here, it doesn't feel as though it's made up, if you know what I mean, though it is, of course, your story is. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, most of the most of the outrageous things that I had the parents do, you know, when when the college admission scandal broke, the um, the advanced copies of the book were going around, and I worried. I thought, okay, I was trying to make my parents in in the book do all these absolutely outrageous things for their kids, and now I see in the news that you have these these parents in Southern California pasting their kids' pictures on rowers to get them into USC or whatever. And I um, I said, okay, that's just so much more outrageous than anything I was having the parents I was imagining do. So I, so I, I, in some ways I worried that it would kind of preempt it and overshadow it. It's been kind of hilarious to see how the book has been received in the, in the wake of the admission scandal as a novel that was, was seeing some of the, the kinds of lengths that parents will go to to ensure what they see as the best for their kids. Well, I think what, what is really draws us in and as readers, is we think we can have a better sense of the motivation of the parents. Like we're horrified by the kinds of things they're doing to try to position their children. But at yeah. the same time, uh, I think what you've done so well is to put before us what would motivate them to do it and how they could, you know, take one step and then say, well, that's not so bad. Maybe if I just did two or three thing, more things, yeah. in the end, it'll all be okay because it's for my child. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why, you know, one of the characters later in the book calls it a kind of collective crime against childhood. And, you know, you don't start out doing criminal things, perhaps. You might just say, um, let me see if I can help you just a little bit with your homework. Ooh, let me help you with that science project. Oh, no, do this with your science project. And then it multiplies and multiplies. And then you have parents, you know, taking credit for other kids' work. You have other parents trying to buy off a high school principal. You know, and it just, it just kind of multiplies. It snowballs. But it starts with these tiny little well-meaning efforts to push their kids along and get the best for them. Um, my guest is Bruce Holsinger. His latest book is The Gifted School. It's our October selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. Now, one thing that you brought up, because you, you really address everything, and I have to say I thought quite tastefully, um, <laughs> you have a character in the book who is not part of the privileged group. He's a, a family and a young man that comes, actually, he's the, the son of the cleaners. His grandmother is cleans house for two of the women in the unique little circle of friends. 
And that allows an opportunity for us to, A, see a kid outside of this and how it would impact that family, this new school, and what the possibilities might be for him. But it also allows your main characters to really open up and say some things that they might not have if they were in their right minds about (laughs) what they think about a kid like him who lived in a community called Beulah, I guess, and the possibility that he uh, might get a space. So I wanted you to read from page 92 because I thought this was an excellent example of that. So here we have Rose, Samantha, Azra, and this this group of women talking about the admissions criteria and who's going to get in and who's not. And one of them refers to Beulah County um, and how those kids will score on the standardized test. Beulah, the poorer county stretching east over the Colorado Plains, 500 square miles of sprawling trailer parks, small-town pawn and gun shops, and an agricultural base that furnished carloads of workers, local organic produce, grass-fed beef, and other necessities to service Crystal's moneyed population. Is there a specific percentage of Beulah kids they're committed to taking? Rose wondered how the schools would navigate this delicate ecology of privilege. Hasn't been decided yet, Samantha responded. Everything's up for grabs. Kev thinks they'll intentionally keep it a mystery. There's good reason for that, though, Lauren said, her tone sharp. Here it comes, Rose thought. Subjects like this were kindling between those two, the wealthy matron versus the social worker, both fighting blind. You have inbuilt testing biases, racial and economic disparities, and educational attainment, Lauren continued. We see it all the time at youth and family services, plus social and psychological issues like nutrition and health care. Even nonverbal IQ scores are affected by environmental circumstances. And brain chemistry, Rose added, mostly to keep the conversation going, better than coiling over Q's potential COGPRO score. Samantha's brows, freshly waxed, rose a half inch. I guess I trust the teachers to know what they're doing. And I trust the research to account for difference in diversity, Lauren countered. Sounds like the school boards want to avoid advantage hoarding and address the excellent gap, and I'm all for it. Advantage hoarding? Are you serious? Sam's kombucha bottle thudded down on the table. So how are they supposed to do that, Lauren? I mean, in a way that's objective and doesn't disadvantage kids who happen, here she lowered her voice again, to be wealthy and white. I'm not the expert, said Lauren, but there are ways of taking account of each student as a unique individual. That was my guest, Bruce Holsinger, reading from his latest novel. It's called The Gifted School, and it's our October selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. I really thought that passage said so much, and you have other similar passages through the book. They're not showy to me, which I appreciate it. They sort of melded into the situation, which I think made it easier for people who maybe don't think about these issues to think about them in a different way within the context of the lives of these women, as it turns out, and and their families. I also have to give you some praise about the way in which you handle the race of your characters, Hmm. because I'm way into the book, and I know you did this deliberately, before I understood that of the four main characters, one of them was not white. Yes. (laughs) And I thought, oh, this is very well done. And how you just, you know, put it out there and made it a part of the conversation in a way that I thought this is extremely clever. Usually people who are not persons of color writing about persons of color are a little bit more heavy-handed. So kudos to you for oh, not being so. Thank you so much. You know, it's, it, it's one thing that I, you know, I think about a lot, and it's, it's something I've, I've read about a lot. You know, how white writers are writing about race even when they, they think they're not. You know, if you're a white writer and you fill your novel with only white characters and 
the issue of race never comes up, and it, you you imagine your novel is colorblind, but you're not because you know a, a novel that that has only white people in it is about race, and I you know I I wanted that to be a kind of natural part of the novel, but that was also created some pressure points at different places in the plot. Well, I appreciate it as as a woman of color. I, I was delightfully surprised in the way that you weave this in quite naturally, not heavy handed, and it was appropriate to what was happening in the situation. So I appreciate the work that you did there because I know that wasn't easy to do. Well, that's kind of you to say. Thank you. So my question to you, not that you have a crystal ball, but since you've been immersed in telling this kind of story, do you think that what was expressed through your characters, what we've seen out in the real world, that there is a competition that is ratcheted up to a level now that just will not return to what I thought, I guess, was always normal? Well, was there ever normal? I just didn't know about it, and now <laughs> it's exposed? Well, I think it's much more the latter, because, I, and that's what um, Operation Varsity Blues has really brought out, is this stuff, you know, I'm I'm in higher education, and I've seen these kinds of you know, privileging of of donors' children, legacy admissions, and so on. These, you know, there there are little pockets of of advantage in the college admissions world. There's there's test prep. I mean, there's been there's long been test prep for the specialized schools in New York, for example. And it's very, as to use your phrase, it's very under the radar. But something like this really brought it out. So I think this stuff has always been there. But it seems like we're in a moment when a lot of it is being exposed and exploded. Now, does that mean it's going to go away? Um, I doubt it. But it could be that there will be, you know, in the admissions world, in the college prep world, in the school prep world, we'll maybe have a little bit more self-consciousness about it as a result. That's what I hope anyway. Well, one of your reviewers or critics called it a surprisingly hopeful novel. Those are his words. Hmm. Do you agree with that? I like to think so. I mean, I, you know, when you're in the middle of it, you're down in the nitty-gritty and in the, in the dark and dirty part of people's souls. And that's really what I was exploring here. But at the end, you know, I wanted, I wanted people to understand that these are good people and that they make mistakes. We all make mistakes of varying degrees and that it's possible to recover from them, to do some reparative work with your friends, with your families. When readers put down my book, I want them to have read a story not just about poor behavior but also about you know, real people who, who have changed, I hope, for the better. I remember that review and, and thinking I, I was grateful for him saying that this is, it's a hopeful novel and that, that it leaves you with that feeling of hope when you turn that last page. Well, I have to say it's a compelling novel and I, I don't know when anybody could put it down. I started and I just about went straight through. <laughs> Oh, so. thank you. That's great. That's great to hear. Everybody wants to hear that. I don't think your future is in medieval culture novel writing. You might have to. <laughs> you might have another one of these uh, <laughs> to to tackle yet. <laughs> yeah, maybe I will. Maybe I will. So, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Bruce Holsinger is the author of The Gifted School. It's our October selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. It is available in bookstores and online now. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts. 
please write to us at undertheradar at wgbh.org. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Our intern is Melissa Rosales. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.